Brian Hodgson is truly a pioneer of sound, a composer and member of the famous BBC Radiophonic Workshop. He began work on television in an era long before computers and the digital technology and AI his modern day counterparts rely on to produce audio for shows such as Doctor Who. That particular show returns to our screen soon and is largely unrecognisable from the show that first aired 60 years ago. The titular character has changed appearance more than a dozen times. Fundamentals of the Doctor's origin and backstory have been written, altered and revised by dozens of writers over the decades, while the interior of his famous spaceship, the TARDIS, is radically different. Even the iconic design of his infamous cyborg rivals, the Daleks, has been tinkered with. But two key aspects of the show remain unchanged, and they are both crucial audio features introduced by Brian Hodgson. But before we discuss the body of his work, it's worth remembering that the Briton of the early 1960s, when he first joined the BBC, was a very different world than the one we know today. While it was rapidly unravelling, Britain still had the remnants of an empire, and Victorian attitudes were pervasive in the institutions, even at the BBC. Brian, I read an amusing anecdote of yours that when you first started working at the BBC, there was a pretty strict uniform dress code, and you caused a little bit of a stir by slightly deviating from it. Well, when I joined the BBC, me appearing with a cravat instead of a tie on a Saturday afternoon, before I'd been in the theatre, I'd been in the RAF, so it was an RAF cravat, so it was all, you know, and a blazer of grey flannels. And it was just suggested that I wish to create a reputation within the BBC uh, as a snappy dresser, I would look well to create a professional reputation first. And a friend of mine was sent home for wearing a pair of wiggle picker shoes with very pointed tips, which were very popular in the early 60s. You worked in the radiophonic workshop with other young talents such as Delia Derbyshire. Within your group, was there a bit of a bohemian feel about you guys when compared with the broader, stuffier perception of the BBC? Yeah, because the Radiophonic Workshop was made available, it was away from Broadcasting House where the everything was a bit proper because you had the public coming in and things like that. But made available, it was pretty much a very relaxed atmosphere. And Desmond Briscoe encouraged that. And so we wore the clothes we would normally wear, which sometimes were jeans, sometimes sweaters, sometimes jumpsuits, sometimes outrageous clothes. We didn't observe a dress code at the Radiophonic Workshop at Maidavale, which was you know, six miles away from the BBC headquarters. One of your earliest contributions to Doctor Who was creating the sound effect for his spaceship, the TARDIS. It's become iconic and is instantly recognisable now, but it's quite an extraordinary sound. How did you come up with it? I'd just done a programme, children's programme, uh, on radio called Survivors, where I'd use slowed-down piano scrape screens to make the sound of the interior of a boat that was on the rocks in the hole. So I knew that was a good source of sound. Also a phrase 
a rending of the fabric of time and space was sort of in my head, and whether I invented it or whether, uh, you know, it was just one I was aware of. And also then I had to think, well, where does the time ship go? A rocket, you go bang, whoosh, and up into the air. And I decided, no, we were not going to do that sort of thing. And I decided, well, time comes and it goes. So if you make a sound and you put feedback on it, it sounds as if it's going away from you. If you turn that backwards, it sounds as if it's coming towards you. So it's a combination of creating the sounds, slowing them down, tuning them till I got the right quality of sound, and then doing the feedback and then reversing it so the feedback came towards you. So it, it came towards you and went away at the same time. I then took some little beeps of sine waves and some little <laughs> of white noise, and I did exactly the same to them. I wasn't exactly ecstatic about what I'd done, but I was you know, pretty pleased that I'd done something that wasn't a rocket ship going bang and bush. The acid test came when Verity Lambert, the producer, and director Waris Hussain came to the workshop to review both Delia Derbyshire's adaptation of Ron Grainer's theme music and to put Brian's TARDIS sound effects to the test. Waris and Verity came and they heard the signature that Delia had done and they were ecstatic about that. And I, I would say when I played them that version of the TARDIS, they were decidedly underwhelmed. They just said, you know, it's got to have a rising note on it. Well, that took another 10 minutes. And, you know, it took me nearly three weeks to do the basic TARDIS, but the rising note took 10 minutes. So we put that on, and there's the TARDIS still being used. Yeah, obviously you nailed it. Is it still being used 60 years later? Another piece of your early work that remains unchanged are the Dalek voices. Was there much direction in the script as to what was required, or was that something you just had to come up with as yourself? The only description I was given is a metallic robot, but speaks with a funny voice. And I was very lucky to be working with an actor called Peter Hawkins, who was a really brilliant actor. And also I'd done a robot voice in a programme called Sword from the Stars, again for children's radio. In that case, it was a robot butler. I used my own voice and a fairly high modulation on it. But these guys had to be menacing. So Peter Hawkins, the actor, myself, and Richard Martin, the director, we got together. And I decided to use a much lower frequency, 30 cycles, in fact. And we realised, of course, that the modulation would only work on vowels. So I said to Peter, you're going to have to elongate the vowels. And of course, being a brilliant actor, he did that. And the combination of his performance and my modulation created the Daleks. Along with Peter Hawkins, another actor, David Graham, best known for his work on Thunderbirds, provided Dalek voices for the early Doctor Who. Some time ago, I spoke to him about his career, and it seems like an opportune moment to just drop in a clip of him recalling being on the other side of Brian's work. David himself was recruited for the job by Peter Hawkins. He was a very good friend of mine and his wife, and he was a brilliant voice artist. He did a lot of famous voices for children. We used to go to a studio called Lime Grove in West London, where we created these voices, and we created it 
as you know, in this staccato rhythm, and they fed it through a synthesizer, so it made it even more menacing. I pre-recorded them all, and Peter went to the actual rehearsals. So that was the beginning of the Dalek voices. Brian, the Radiophonic Workshop was tasked with providing sound effects and audio, but on occasion you were asked to provide music. Was that because of budgetary reasons? I mean, I know they had composers such as Dudley Simpson, for example, who often wrote scores for the show. What circumstances caused the Radiophonic Workshop to step in? For the first nine years when I was doing the sound, we didn't have Dudley, and the workshop was not supposed to be doing any music. One or two things where there was no money, the famous, uh, I think they were in space with the Zabi ants and things. Uh, they didn't have enough money to build sets, so they had the TARDIS set already and they surrounded it with black velvet and this twinkly lights on it and then played the whole thing with the, doc- the doctor through the window uh, with this, these ants. And then cr- the crotons, I suppose, was the first time I'd done sort of a musical thing. In fact, it was probably the first time uh, the workshop had done the music as well. Later on, of course, because after the first nine years, I left the BBC. And so Dick Mills took over. But just before I left, Barry, the producer, had asked if we could have more music. And they got Dudley Simpson in. And I'd worked with Dudley before. So he and I formed a sort of partnership. And we, we started doing the music for, and I think when I left, uh, Dudley and Dick to carry on that tradition. They were using the big synthesizer called the Synthi 100, which had arrived in the early 70s. Dudley and I had been using a very primitive synthesizer called the VCS3. When you were involved with Doctor Who, three different actors, William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee, took on a title role. In those days, did you, in the sound department, have much interaction with them and the rest of the cast? Hardly none at all with William Hartnell. In the days of Bill's Doctor Who, uh, the stuff was done in Lime Grove. It wasn't properly, you know, you couldn't edit it. But you and I had to make four cuts in a tape because it was so expensive. Later on with Patrick, they started to introduce sort of film bits. And so I could see that on film. But by the time Dudley came along, of course, we're in a proper studio and we were using videotape. Before I left, we had got a small semi-professional video recorders. So they would send the cut version of the program over and we could work to that cut version. And in fact, Dudley, very often we'd see that. Dudley would write the music overnight and then we'd make it over the next three days. Time scales started to creep in. Dudley had a phrase, do you want it good or do you want it Wednesday? Usually the answer was, can we have it on Tuesday afternoon? So we'd probably get the the cut version on a, a Friday afternoon. Dudley would write it. We would work usually over the weekend. And then usually by Tuesday afternoon, it was ready to go down to the studio. Beyond Doctor Who, you're a composer and were heavily involved in the early days with developing electronic music. And I've read that on one occasion, 
you were asked to be involved in a demonstration of this new technology at a performance attended by the Queen. Can you tell me about that particular experience? The new chief engineer at Radio uh, was that year president of the Institute of Electrical Engineers. And there's some history there because the Institute of Electrical Engineers, where the the BBC was actually housed before Broadcasting House of Bill, said that we, we had connections. The Queen was coming for the 100th anniversary. Desmond was asked to do a presentation. And it was decided that Delia would do a piece using the Synthi 100, which we literally only had for about 10 days. And we still didn't quite understand how it worked anyway. I actually wrote the instruction manual with the chief engineer of EMS who built it. Because I said, where's the instruction manual? He said, there isn't one. So we sat down, we spent a night, and we made a lot of elementary mistakes. So I didn't understand things. But unfortunately, that... That handbook went out with Cynthia Handler for the next three years, I'm corrected. Anyway, so Delia was supposed to do a piece using the Cynthia 100, and we were going to have the Cynthia 100 on stage. At that point, the power supplies were a little iffy on the one we got. So Peter Zinoviev lent us his to go on stage at the festival. We weren't going to use it live, of course, so everything was going to be played in. Because of my theatre background, I was asked to direct the proceedings. Desmond had put together his thing, and we used primitive laser lights to show waveforms. And yeah, it was all, it was state of the technology as it was then, 1971, I think it was, which now, of course, is very primitive. Delia started work on the piece, or it didn't have a very long piece, but sort of Rose, she had a couple of ideas which she thought would, weren't very good, but she had, we had to stick with them uh, based on the Morse code for IEE and the transposing the letters of the scale IEE 100. So she got more and more depressed and the date was sort of coming towards us. And I, I said, well, look, let me go to the archives, see if I can find some bits and pieces to do with electricity. So I, I found loads of bits and pieces. I mean, I even found phonograph recordings, and I know they weren't electric, but I just had to stretch the thing. And, and it ended up with Neil Armstrong stepping onto the moon. And, and I said, use these as a sort of skeleton and hang your ideas on them, which she did, but she was still not very happy. And the night before the concert, she still hadn't done a final mix. And I'd been working through the night with her, really to keep her spirits up because she was very depressed. So I had to leave the night before because I had to prepare to be at the World Festival Hall at six o'clock the following morning. So I said to the engineer working with her, when she does the final mix, I want you to, in the next door studio, but please do not tell her, I want you to, to run another co- a copy of it. So that as you're recording the master, it's simultaneously, there'll be another master recording the other two. And tomorrow morning, Richard, you must bring it to me. Personally, do not tell Delia I've done it, you've done it. And he, good his word, he came the next morning. So at least I had a piece. Delia arrived in tears and said, I've erased it. And what she thought we were going to do for the end of this presentation in front of the Queen, I do not know. Anyway, I, I at least got the thing. We did the dress rehearsal. 
the guy organising it on behalf of the IE thought we were a load of piss artists and was extremely unhelpful. He put everything in his way to make our life difficult. He then decided that there would be an interval in the presentation so the Queen could get up and go if she wanted. It wasn't long for us, but of course now. And I said, well, how will we know whether she's going or staying? And he said, I will, I will send it. You stand there under, under the royal box, and I will send a message down to you to say Her Majesty wishes to stay or she wishes to go. So we stopped at the appointed thing. Everyone, a bit of silence. Everyone sort of looked embarrassed. And eventually the Queen looked around and stood up and left leaving the rest of the piece to be done. I after that, I heard a round of applause, which I usually meant the Queen had left. So I just carried it. I saw this, and we carried on the presentation. Of course, the Queen wasn't nice to hear the piece anyway, so uh, all Delia's fears were really quite unfounded. But that was really the story of IE100. I spent the night of that in hospital with, uh, in uh, Paddington, because as they were clearing all the equipment out to go back to Mandeville, I ran down the stairs of the festival hall, forgetting that the bottom stair isn't as deep as the other stairs. I shot down there, reached the bottom, and the crash of how weight went onto my, my ankles. Uh, let's break my ankle. Ended up in action in emergency for the evening. You left the BBC after nine years, but eventually you returned. Were budgetary constraints and the long hours a factor in you leaving? And when you came back, had anything much changed? Yeah, see, the, the trouble was we basically only had two studios. We had five composers or five sound assistants. So you have to share studios. So that's why... You know, some people like to work in England, why John Baker did, because he used to travel in from South End. Then he'd leave by two o'clock in the afternoon and what we call the night shift would come in. Uh, so you could just go out at studio time, you could. As Doctor Who progressed, the studios tended to be booked by the day for Doctor Who. Other people had to scramble to do their other shows in what time and space was available. When I went back to the BBC, I made a vow at the interview board. They said, will you come back? And I said, only if you give me a free hand to create more studios. And they said, but there's no money. And I said, well, worry about that when I come back. But you've got a free hand. The first week I was back, I was sent off by Desmond to an engineering meeting. Uh, where all the engineering bigwigs were. And everyone was very sweet and welcomed me as deputy head of my department. And and one of them took me aside. I think it was the chief accountant, radio engineering, took me aside and said, uh, don't have any ideas about new equipment because there isn't any money about. And what there is is earmarked. And it's not for the most minor section of our department which I thought was really nice. Then I was sent to a, a personnel meeting for new staff, which was addressed by the retiring head of personnel, who at one point said, 
I'd like you all to know as you join the BBC that when somebody is giving you a pat on the back, they're just checking the place to put the knife. Um, and I think he felt that had been done to him. <laughs> Gradually, various things happened over the first couple of years and uh, a new managing director radio came in from television, took one look at broadcasting house and said, this place is a shithole. You know, get it painted, get new carpets. I've just come back from Japan and I've seen the future of electronics. All these old tape recorders, you know, most of them about 15 years old, they've got to go. You're completely re-equipped all your tape recorders. And that was a great bonus. He also brought over some of his people from television who were quite go-getters. And I got on very well with the new organiser of studio operations. I have to say the workshop was run by two departments, really, studio operations, which provide their studio managers for all the radio studios, and engineering. When the workshop started, they were given an engineer whose job was basically to go around all the junk departments, just called redundant plant, and get stuff working for the workshop because they didn't have any money to buy proper tape recorders and things. There was that sort of thing pulling in both directions, the program pulling from operations and the engineering of the engineering side. And I'd been sent to that engineering meeting because Desmond had been given an engineer that he had not asked for. He had asked for a particular guy called Ray White, who eventually we got. But there was a war going on when I got, which is why I went to the engineering meeting and this one didn't. But he didn't tell me there was a war going on at that point. So I had to find that out for myself. But then when Aubrey Singer took over as head of Managing Director Radio, I was able to take advantage of the re- complete refurbishing of the radio studios because we were part of radio. So we got new tape recorders, things like that. A meeting every three months uh, called the Radio Phonic and Technical Subcommittee, which I infiltrated with the new head of studio operations. I persuaded him that as the workshop didn't have any budget, I was not prepared to rely on things that people found surplus to requirements, so they gave them to us to escape embarrassment. And he asked me, if he could invite Head of Resources Television to come over, a guy called Michael Jacklin. He came over and I did my usual number and he asked me to write a paper on the next 10 years of the Radiophonic Workshop, which I did. And I planned it to open six studios. Well, that would would meant four new ones. And I... Gave him an estimate uh, for what I thought that would cost over that period. Uh, but each year for the next 10 years, being a canny accountant, he said I got half of it. But being a canny pirate, I'd asked for twice as much as I needed anyway. So we were okay. Uh, he tempered that with saying oh, radio was going to contribute as well. So I ended up with the amount of money I needed. And then with the brilliant engineer and his, his assistant, as Ray White and the, the two Rays, we call them, Ray White and Ray Riley. Hand in hand, we built a new studio every year until we had nearly a studio per composer, which was my 
aim, such that they could have access to it 24 hours a day. They could work overnight through whatever. Because deadlines are very tight in television. I also made it my business to know what was happening technically all over the world. Uh, I make great friends with the Yamaha role and people like that who are making synthesizers. When I came back to the BBC, I first of all told them they couldn't, Doctor Who, they couldn't monopolize the Synthi 100. And as the Synthi 100 was by then nearly eight years old, uh, I wanted to bring in much more modern modules, uh, which we developed at my studio outside, uh, polyphonic keyboards and things like that. Uh, and much more sophisticated voltage control modules. And we were going to, well, we did strip down the Synthi 100, because I knew if we didn't strip it down, it'd get pressed into service. And we were going to rebuild it. The rebuild was going to be called the Phoenix, and it would have all the WaveMaker modules that we developed at my studio outside. And, of course, MIDI happened, which actually made voltage control sort of rather superfluous. So never being one afraid to change my mind if I'm heading towards a brick wall, I decided we would go the media route. And uh, and so that the phoenix never rose from the ashes. When I found out about Macintosh uh, back 1983-4, I started investigating that. And we were the first department in BBC to, to bring in Macintosh computers. They were all a bit clunky in those days, and the software was so slow. You know, just opening a page would be two minutes. Uh, and now, in case you can just click, it's there. And we stayed with that because the software being developed for Macintosh was very good. Until we ended up with all our studios for Macintosh control, we kept right on the edge every time there was an upgrade. We did that. And I instituted the, the BBC had a system called sabbatical leave, which meant after so many years, you could give the staff three months off and it was fully paid during that period so they could go off do something else uh, so most of them went off and went on cruise around the world or whatever but peter howell the, one of my composers he went off and did a lot of research and came back with a system where he, in theory you could control everything in the studio from the macintosh and he came back and said i'd like to try that and i said well i can't spare you as a composer, but I'm prepared to set up an experimental studio, literally based on filing cabinets and cutouts of, of wood and things. And the engineers uh, sorted out ways of doing it, and they connected it up the way Peter wanted. And it, it was magic. And the head of research from Yamaha came over and said, this is the most sophisticated MIDI studio in Europe. And you're making music in it. You know, this isn't a research thing. You're actually making music. But then, of course, reality hit the fan uh, in the form of John Bird, who introduced an internal market. In the old days, if somebody wanted something from the workshop, it was done for them. It didn't matter whether it was a major drama or a little kid's program in the Welsh language. They could just ask and it would be provided. Uh, but we had to cost everything. We found all our studios were being charged at West End rates. So the little lady who used to do a suite of nursery rhymes for once a year in Welsh language television had to just carry on using the, the old stuff they got. And of course, the big budget programs wanted the freedom to go to big budget composers. So we were really sort of hung out to dry. 
But I suppose we were victims of our own success. The fact we nearly made 50 years was quite good. I took early retirement in 95, I think it was, because I just made myself ill trying to balance budgets and things like that. And the only non-productive part of the workshop was myself and my secretary. And I thought, well, that job could be done from Broadcasting House. So that was not vastly successful because nobody bothered to change the phones from Maidenvale to Broadcasting House for three months. Nobody quite knew who was in charge of the workshop. So I'm afraid by then it was no longer my problem. I Virtually everything I'd done as a preparation for an easy handover didn't work because the other end wasn't ready to pick up the pieces. Brian, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much. You belong to us. You will become like us. You will obey the Dalek. Oh, no, no.